So I've been seeing a lot of people talking about like techno feudalism, you know, like is, is capitalism dead? Are we, are we regressing back to feudalism, you know, as a way to try to understand the current moment uh, with technology and political economy and society and all that. You know, there's, there's a lot of interesting thinking. There's a lot of bad thinking. There's a lot of thought provoking, uh, you know, words and stuff going on out there. Uh, you know, what, what, what are we meant to think about? Like, is this feudalism? I mean, if it's feudalism, you know what I think we should do to the manners. But I'm not going to say that. I saw some interesting thoughts from Morozov on this, you know, and you could sound, if you're listening, you can sound the alarm because uh, that's this week's uh, Morozov uh, watch uh, quota has been hit. And um, I think he was talking a little bit about whether or not it makes sense to say that tech is futile, much in the way that if Web 2, Web 2 was thought of as a self-serious thing, but it actually doesn't exist, and Web 3 is supposed to be some natural progression of it, capitalism has turned into feudalism, then it is feudalism goes into capitalism, isn't Web 3 then a reversion to capitalism? So what's the point of calling it feudal, right? I mean, we, we could, you know, we could quote the man, but okay, I, okay. I think we got something better. Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 134 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. Our guest today needs no introduction, but just, just by formality's sake, um, we are extremely pleased to be joined by Evgeny Morozov, who is for a long time one of the leading kind of public intellectuals around critical analysis of technology in the world, um, is now also the founder and publisher of the syllabus and the crypto syllabus, the, the knowledge curation platforms that we'll get into. Um, but we, we are going to have just a, an a awesome conversation. I'm very excited for it. Thank you for joining us, Evgeny. Sure, it's a pleasure. I'm happy to be here. Awesome. So, I mean, just just by way of uh, of getting started, then I, you know, I mentioned the syllabus and the crypto syllabus, and that is what you are spending a lot of your time working on uh, right now. And and I would really think I would love to know more about the origins and purposes of this. Right? Like you describe it, um, or it's rather described the syllabus is described as an as knowledge curation platform that uh, seeks to continually index, rank, and review newly published text, video, and audio. And you've also been creating a lot of new content um, through the syllabus, especially through the kind of ongoing interviews on the crypto syllabus with a wide range of leading thinkers. What is the kind of origin and purpose of this new project that you've been spending so much time on? Sure. Um, so uh, essentially, a lot of the 
insights uh, and methods of the syllabus, which is the kind of the older sibling uh, of the two, uh, go back to my own time um, at Harvard when I was doing my dissertation uh, in history of science. You know, I embarked upon this very ambitious project that I'm still working on to write um, the kind of long durée history of what we call the internet, quote unquote, because I don't actually call it the internet, but I play along <laughs> sometimes. Um, for me, of course, it was not a matter of going and writing a history of DARPA or saying that, okay, you know, we had this uh, commercialization of the internet with Al Gore. I always wanted to write this much longer multidisciplinary kind of thing where you can actually start with something like cybernetics or information theory, and you can chart many different paths that were followed by various disciplines because the debates at the beginning involved anthropologists, biologists, chemists. Uh, you know, it was not just a matter of building networks. Uh, if you really want to tell this long duress story, you really need to follow developments and debates across a dozen of disciplines and multiple languages. And once you understand what kind of an intellectual challenge that is, you immediately run into the question of, well, what should I be reading to even write this history? Uh, and uh, for me, the challenge was, how do I generate a list of top thousand books, let's say, that you have access to at Harvard? which you have access to 10 million books in this library, and you can borrow any other books from any other libraries. How do you solve it almost as an engineering challenge? Uh, and it took me a while to figure out how to solve it. In the end, I think I solved that. Um, I mean, I can explain why <laughs> without getting into the kind of nitty-gritty details. Uh, but essentially, I understood that there is a method through which you can represent any topic of interest uh, through various names, concepts, names of institutions, and so forth. And then you can start comparing any incoming piece of content, whether it's uh, an article or a podcast or a video or a book, and see how well those items compare to your kind of ideal type item, whether it's about history of cybernetics or history of architecture, history of neoliberalism, doesn't really matter. Um, so it occurred to me that this method I've developed to satisfy my own research and to identify both new literature and previously published literature that is of relevance to my research agenda could be applied uh, to many other topics. And I understood that essentially this is the way to liberate us in some sense from <laughs> the dependence that we have on current ways of finding materials, which are heavily tied to methods developed by the like of Google, uh, when it comes to finding information and discovering it, and on the other hand, to the logic of social media when it comes to sharing it, right? So much of what we consume, it either comes from badly formulated Google searches, uh, or it comes from people randomly dropping links on social media and that those links somehow finding us through God knows which algorithms. So I started building the syllabus as a way of um, not necessarily, you know, making money. It's not making any money, to be honest, but of uh, showing uh, how what many public institutions believe to be an unsolvable challenge 
which is building a public sphere that doesn't default to the logic of advertising, doesn't default to the logic of uh, social media, uh, to show that this is possible and to show that it can be done on a shoestring budget without necessarily attracting billions of dollars in funding, while at the same time enhancing the public conversation on issues that I consider to be important. So we started with 60 of them. Uh, six issues, we uh, deliver and track content in six languages across six different content types, as we call them, again, from podcasts to books with a lot of journalism and academic articles in between. Um, and uh, so far, it's working. So it's, it's, it's a way, again, to put pressure on real actors who I think should be doing it. And those actors, of course, are the cultural institutions and the public institutions and the libraries and museums and, the, and uh, you know, galleries and uh, the, the, the university system that should actually be leading this fight. So it, it was a way of basically stealing this argument that this can be done from them and uh, making sure that they have to uh, come up with better arguments uh, to justify their own inaction <laughs> in this field. For me, of course, it's a nice way as an intellectual to keep myself always on my toes, so to say, because I do have to make curatorial decisions every week, which means that I have to, I mean, I have a lot of people not a lot of, but I have some people working with me, of course, on the curatorial side. So it's not everything done by me, but I do have to sign off on most of it. And it also ensures that every week as an intellectual, I actually get to see all the latest papers on topics that I think I should be tracking, whether it's about neoliberalism or about macroeconomics or whether it's about political economy or artificial intelligence. It's a nice way to keep yourself up to date and to basically have no choice because if I don't sign off on it, we won't be able to distribute it to our readers. So it's uh, kind of, you, you either do it or you don't. So that's the background there briefly. With your research into developing like the curation, the editorial side, did you find that there were any sort of institutions or public you know, sort of knowledge systems that had tried to do something like this or experimented with it and it was beat back down. You know, we've talked a bit with uh, some guys like Daniel Green about uh, about like neoliberal projects and experiments in library systems and in un university systems to try to curate like a specific way of getting knowledge out to people. Mm -hmm. um, but I think one thing we probably didn't get to talk about was like before the experimentation process or even during it, what alternatives were lost out or crushed or or suppressed and, and I'm curious if like you've came up, you came across similar ones or uh -huh. uh, other ones that you might have learned from that, uh, you know, are along the path that you're trying to pressure institutions to do. Sure. Well, it, it depends, of course, on how ambitiously we define uh, the mission or what it is that the syllabus does. I mean, that there have been countless initiatives uh, to curate knowledge, to organize all of the world's information, uh, out of which, you know, Google, to some extent, comes out of. So, you know, people who study history of information will point you to all sorts of uh, experiments throughout the 20th and even 19th century to build all sorts of museums of knowledge and to store information and to represent it. And uh, I mean, I'm not that ambitious. I mean, I don't see myself in, in that uh, line of, of work or in, in that genealogy necessarily. Um, but of course, if you look at it through a micro, narrower lens, 
um, something that came up in my research, for example, on Stafford Beer, um, you know, the guy who built uh, Project CyberScene and who is one of the cyberneticians that has been rediscovered lately, is that in the late 1960s, for example, he was already working on the idea of the personalized newsletter, where all of the contents of the newsletter you would be receiving would be completely personalized according to your interests. And this is, by the way, I didn't explain it. Uh, that I think is the key part and the key innovation that we introduced two years ago. And I, I don't think other newsletter providers have actually caught up with, with, with what we offered because we allow our readers to pick uh, out of 60 topics, pick five to 10 that they're really interested in. And the links that they get on a weekly basis are essentially uh, in the personalized edition uh, are uh, composed of topics that they've indicated as of interest to them. Uh, and this degree of personalization, it wasn't present in newsletters two and a half years ago when we launched, and it's still not present. So by default, you normally get links that everybody else gets, or you maybe get a very basic degree of personalization, but they don't let you personalize it based on languages you speak or the types of content you want or the topics that you would like to be receiving. And uh, for us, it was um, kind of key to, to show that, okay, personalization in itself it's not a bad thing. Uh, it could be done differently, and it doesn't have to be done by tracking users, monitoring their behavior, and treating them like children. We want to give people the ability to basically go and say, okay, I've been interested in architecture, but my interests have evolved, and now I would like to get more articles about literature. Great. I mean, I don't need to infer it by observing your behavior. I can just give you a panel. We would just go and unselect architecture and select literature. So uh, this, for me, was a very important move. But again, you know, of course, the longer you look and the more you look into the history of publishing, uh, the more such efforts you would discover. And I'm pretty sure if we looked into it far enough, we would find people even before beer suggesting something along those lines. Uh, but I must say that um, the temptation with projects like the syllabus is to turn it into an art project uh, and, you know, and to make it part of the kind of gallery circuit and to go and endlessly present it at uh, art festivals in Berlin or Paris or somewhere else. And in that case, of course, I would give you this long history of how we just represent the latest in curation, which I've never had any interest in. That's why, despite being nudged and pushed to write a manifesto about what the syllabus does, I've been very modest and I've uh, basically refused to do that because I, I, I think, you know, it's either that we deliver a good service and it works or we don't. And I don't necessarily need to turn it into a vision because there is no vision here. It's essentially, I mean, there is a vision, but it's not, it's not something that I see being universalized. I mean, that's not a model for how knowledge as a public good should be provided. It's an argument uh, hoping that people and institutions that should be in this business would wake up. But in a way, do I want to present it as a, as a solution of any kind, right? It's a temporary solution mm -hmm. that is aware of the fact that it needs to become obsolete to be truly successful. And it kind of makes it very difficult um, makes it very difficult to survive because on the one hand, you know, we can't claim to be an art project because I just think it will create a rhetoric of bullshit around us, which I will not be able to tolerate. But it also ties our hands because we cannot be a full-blown startup because I understand that that will inject a very different kind of bullshit into what we do and that I would also like, like to resist. So it kind of leaves us in this no man's land where 
We have to depend on the one hand on subscribers, and on the other hand, we have to depend on the institutions that work with us because we also work with institutions and help them curate and help them satisfy their own research needs, which by and large are like-minded institutions that share our views and agendas. And uh, but so far, it's working, so I'm not I'm not complaining. There's a lot there, and you mentioned you know knowledge as a as a public good, and and the idea as well that ultimately the goal of the syllabus is to make itself obsolete, to make itself not needed in in a sense. Uh, and and so I am really curious as well because there is this whole kind of economy of knowledge that you're talking about here, where you know you've said you you resist you know, writing a manifesto uh, about the syllabus, because I think you're right that once you start writing a manifesto and once you start espousing these grand, uh, ambitious plans, then you very quickly or, or at least, you know, can easily slip into being Google, right? To being, you know, do no evil, uh, and we're going to, you know, index the world's knowledge uh, and, and all of that. And in reality, you know, I mean, I think it's, it's well known, but often forgotten that, you know, the indexing algorithm for Google was essentially just taking uh, uh, academic uh, norms around citations and just uh, applying that to the web, right? If a, if a website has, you know, anomaly, if it has higher amounts of hyperlinks to it, those are citations and they'll get, you know, higher up on the search. So in, in a sense, you know, Google is trying to do this uh, you know, a, a kind of crowdsourcing of knowledge curation. It's not, it's not an Evgeny signing off on what the, the web page looks like when you type in a search result. It's everybody in the world signing off on that. Although we, we of course know that's a lot of bullshit. bullshit. One of the things that I find really interesting about the syllabus is as well that, you know, it could very easily, you know, like a, like a newsletter, which is also a very kind of curatorial way of getting information. You know, I'm really interested in what Adam too says. So I'm going to subscribe to his Substack or I'm interested in this person says. And so I'm going to subscribe to their Substack. But at the same time, one of the things I find really interesting about the syllabus and also having followed you for so long, followed your work, followed you on Twitter and seeing this just massive, very eclectic, uh, interest. You know, it is not one super deep thing, which I think you know, I'm an academic as well. And, you know, you, you learn a lot about one really specific thing. Uh, but it, it's very often that means that you don't go outside of your sub, sub, subfield in a discipline, let alone other disciplines, other radical ways of, of understanding the world. Um, and so I, I am really interested in that kind of aspect of doing something that is both very curatorial, but also seeks to be very broad and eclectic, mm -hmm. having that mm -hmm. very um, collective view of knowledge and, and how, I mean, and this can kind of start getting into your own, your own intellectual development. But on one hand, how did you uh, escape, you know, doing a PhD at Harvard? How did you escape that hyper specialization? Um, while at the same time, how do you actualize that really broad eclectic interest in a very like personalized curatorial way? Yeah, so I will reflect on my own intellectual development in a second. But uh, for now, let me just maybe say a few words about 
what I think makes the syllabus so special in terms of curation. So clearly, uh, to produce an edition that we do every week um, requires us roughly 1,000 things a week, which means that we have to go and find podcasts, videos, uh, books, uh, academic articles and essays in English, Portuguese, Italian, French, Spanish, English, uh, German, and so forth. We have to verify them. We have to read them. We have to, you know, scroll through them. Uh, then we have to decide how to package them across editions uh, and so forth. This is an immense amount of work. And of course, it's, 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 it all works on an assumption that once you distribute those links to the uh, public sphere at large, people would actually look at those links uh, and they would then read them and then they would come to a certain conclusion that they would be able to compare with the conclusion of the peers and they would engage in debate and you will have this empirically formed uh, discussion that will change minds on uh, topics of the day. Uh, of course, the way that the car current public sphere works are not exactly those. Uh, we sometimes react uh, in a very base manner just to whatever hits our inbox, and the more rhetorical it is, the better, and the more provocative it is, the better. And that's why... Uh, if you compare us to an average newsletter where somebody with a big na name brand uh, produces 800 words and uh, backs them up with five or six links and the power of the argument is rhetorical, what we're doing is complete overkill. Uh, it would be so much easier for me just to sit down and dedicate two hours to producing an 800-word essay with 10 links in them every week, and I would probably be enjoying many more subscribers, and I would be very narrowly discussing the power of big tech, and there would be you know hundreds uh, of thousands of followers after two years. And I've kind of decided not to do that, and maybe commercially, of course, it's suicidal, but I still believe in the mission of what we're doing. I still think that there needs to be a way for people to get access to these materials, which the mechanics of the current and the political economy of the current public sphere regularly suppresses. I mean, we discover content from YouTube channels that have five subscribers, and they will tell you everything you need to know about, I don't know, energy policy of Saudi Arabia. And of, of course, it might seem like an obscure debate that would never be recommended by YouTube algorithms. But if uh, we do want to have a serious public debate, we need to have the right mechanisms for uncovering that content. And that's why from the very beginning, we did have this ironic motto of the good content is already here, it's just not evenly distributed, right? And I think it's it's correct. I mean, uh, there is already quite a lot of good content being produced by uh, public institutions, by libraries, by uh, universities, by galleries, by think tanks. It's just that the way in which uh, attention distribution on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook work, that content remains unseen. It remains, it languishes in complete obscurity on these platforms, uh, even though there is tax money that goes into producing it and uploading it and storing it there to some extent. So what we wanted to do is to find a way to systematically break the cycles of attention that are generated by social media and to some extent almost intervene into 
how the market works. It's 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 a form of attention Keynesianism, if you will, where we really wanted <laughs> to intervene into how the uh, economy of attention operates and to uh, you know kind of undertake this technocratic interventions in redistributing attention to things that we think deserve them. Uh, and as a, as a result, of course, we hoped and still do that people would not only read that content, but they would also start following those sources. They would subscribe to the YouTube channel. They would subscribe to the podcast. They would uh, start following that academic art, uh, academic journal. They would start uh, subscribing to that publication from which the essay comes out. And I still believe in that. And it has to be done. But again, it's not, to be truly successful, it requires a, a, a much bigger push. And there has to be a public institution uh doing this work. Uh, with regards to my own intellectual development, uh, I mean, it's true that um, my interests are wide and broad. Uh, and I was lucky that even when I started working uh, on my dissertation, I kind of chose a topic area that eventually, of course, then became much narrower. But at the beginning, I started with a super ambitious, uh, multidisciplinary, multi-language agenda, which kept me reading and visiting a lot of archives. And I visited more than 30, I think, uh, in, in the three or four years that I was doing archival research. Um, and essentially, for me, um, even before I got to write my dissertation, I already had, I already wrote two books, more or less. I was doing a lot of essays. I, I had some experience working for, you know, NGOs, nonprofits. I had some experience in Washington. I had some experience as a, as a visiting fellow in various universities. So I already had uh, a somewhat atypical background for somebody starting uh, a PhD. And I understood how easy, how easily uh, the traditional uh, academic system can crush <laughs> those interests and socialize you into attending graduate seminars about the most obscure and exotic topics ever. And I've just, uh, uh, you know, knowing how how the system functions allowed me to escape all of those socialization mechanisms. So uh, it, it left absolutely no impact, <laughs> I would argue, <laughs> on uh, kind of how my own intellectual agenda looks like. I mean, of course, I ask very different questions and I know uh, what are some of the debates in my discipline that I can then take and apply to debates about the digital space. All of that is true. But uh, I was also very realistic uh, about what I wanted to get out of that experience. And it wasn't specialization and it wasn't a continued academic career. You know, it's kind of, it's, uh, so it was a very typical case because I started my dissertation knowing that I never want to be an academic. I never want to be on the job market. I never want to write an academic article. I never want to spend any time at academic conferences. Once you, I never want to apply for a grant. You know, once you start with those assumptions, uh, your life becomes easy because a lot of decisions that people spend a lot of time agonizing over just don't need to be taken and you can just enjoy it. Uh, but uh, that requires a certain degree of certitude and confidence uh, financially and professionally, which, of course, most people that age don't have. And I was lucky to have it because I already published books and I had a standing of some kind. Yeah, I mean, as with a lot of institutions, academia in particular, it, it really is about reproducing academics uh, in a lot of ways. And so it, it is, you know, very interesting to hear how you, you went into the dissertation already knowing you were going to be resisting that reproduction. Um, I, I am very 
curious though as well you know yes that that kind of idea of how you entered into your your dissertation and 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 what you wanted to get out of the phd but also in terms of your own intellectual development and your your thinking there is a I think there is a trajectory of, uh, of Evgeny thought, if we might call it that. Um, especially, you know, Ed and I have been following you for a decade or more in terms of your work. We are, you know, deeply familiar with your, you know, the, the early days, uh, you know, not only at foreign policy, uh, but also, you know, your scorching review essays in the New Republic and all of that. Um, and then eventually kind of moving towards this more, you know, public intellectual doing your PhD at Harvard to, you know, now working on the syllabus. And, and I've noticed as well that at some point there seems to have been this kind of like political economic turn in your thinking. Your thinking started to become a lot more Marxist or in its orientation. It started to ask more of these like really materialist questions uh, and historical materialist questions about technology. Um, you know, you see some of that around like uh, to save everything click here um, where you start, you know, questioning the concept of the internet and, you know, it's famously in quotes throughout that entire book. Um, but I am very curious, what was it? Was it something exogenous? Was it that you're kind of tracing and, and keeping up with how the tech sector was developing that made you turn towards a more political economic understanding? Was it something else? And I'll, before you jump in, I'll also say as well, I mean, to varying degrees and not um, absent of your influence, my own, uh, you know, work as a, as an academic and as a researcher and a writer also very much took uh, a very similar turn where I was very interested in these kind of questions of, you know, digital technology and society, but also in the course of doing my PhD. And in particular for me, it was, um, becoming, a, 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 a kind of an autodidactic human geographer and economic geographer it was where I started getting a lot more into political economy. And then my work took on a much more Marxist turn almost around the same time as yours did. And for me, I think it was, you know, actually looking at the tech sector as uh, as something that was both an outgrowth of and reproducing capitalism as a, as a, as a whole, um, that made me realize I, what I'm really interested in studying here is the development of capitalism, not technology as a fetishized, uh, object of study. Um, I'm interested to hear how you came to that and what, what kind of catalyzed that shift in your thinking as well. Mm -hmm. Sure. So um, some of it, uh, so to, to sort of the short answer, and then I'll give you the long ones. Uh, the, the short answer is that some of that came out of reflecting on my own work and the limitations of it uh, and the uh, reactions to the books and the essays I was writing and kind of my frustration with the inability to maybe answer some of the questions I was asking in a more meaningful manner. So a lot of that had internal reasons. Some of that had to do with um, kind of more personal factors. I mean, uh, it, it's, it's hard to deny that uh, after I met my wife, uh, Francesca Bria, I mean, we engaged in a lot of dialogues and discussions, and she is um, somebody with a much firmer um, background in political movements and organizing and uh, political action 
and uh, she comes from this Italian tradition um, of, you know, we can say autonomous Marxism or post-operaismo. And, uh, of course, engaging with that has been uh, very important to me, even though I've come to dismiss them. Uh, eventually, engaging with that and thinking through that was a very important move. But let me give maybe a longer answer uh, to this. So if we look at uh, my first book, uh, you know, the net delusion uh, that came out mostly from uh, practical work on the ground. Uh, I was working around 2006, seven, and eight in uh, a nonprofit. We were getting a lot of money from various uh, foundations uh, and Western governments to promote new media and social media as a vehicle for change. And you know, I was going around various regions. I went to even crazy place. I mean, I went to Syria, you know, if you can believe that, you know, I've, I've, I've traveled, uh, I've traveled widely. And uh, what I observed on the ground was that a lot of these places um, did not function the way that this uh, foundations and NGOs and nonprofits thought. And uh, I started writing about the way in which all of these new media platforms and tools uh, were having the effect that was opposite to this democratizing agenda that uh, people in America and Western Europe were envisioning. Uh, that wasn't very deep, but I tried to make it deep. So um, I did try to read around uh, in you know history books, literature on democratization, backlash against democratization. I tried to make sense of why these assumptions were there by linking them to uh, some of the things we assumed uh, during the Cold War about the liberating potential of media. And, and so there was an engagement with literatures and traditions and disciplines uh, that was not probably traditional in that kind of uh, domain. So I would engage with uh, Cold War historians and I would look at historiographic debates they were having. And at that point, I had very little training in history. I was not a historian by any training, but it was interesting to me. And I became deeply aware of the way in which you can take some of the current debates about something like the Twitter revolution or the Facebook revolution and historicize them by drawing comparisons, let's say, to the protests that we were seeing in Berlin in 1989 and the, the role that was attributed to soap operas or Xerox machines or whatever. So it was possible to start thinking comparatively and historically and to some extent I understood that maybe this is the way to go to deflate some of the myth um, that uh, we had uh, around these technologies. Uh, then, uh, by luck and coincidence, I ended up in Silicon Valley myself, so I ended up spending almost two years at Stanford, which is how To Save Everything Click Here came out. So I was there observing some of this craziness, and I saw that um, what I described in my first book, uh, where social media was supposed to disrupt uh, foreign policy and this democratization agenda, and it was supposed to accelerate um, the spread of democracy. The same expectations were held across all the other domains, from healthcare to education to you know transportation, you name it. So I, I, it was mostly me applying the critique I applied in the domain of foreign policy to uh, all the other areas. Um, and... Um, you know, to me, it's undeniably true that that was happening. But as I uh, try to apply this critique to so many disparate, uh, no, uh, well, different domains, I also understood that it requires a certain theoretical and normative grounding. I mean, this critique, otherwise, 
it, it just all becomes very essayistic, meaning that it all becomes like a compilation of New Yorker articles where, you know, Adam Gopnik takes on, right. uh, you know, Mont- Montesquieu or Montaigne, and then he tries to reflect <laughs> upon Montaigne, and then the week after he reflects on the history of cats, and then the week after he reflects about Tolstoy and whatever, right? And of course, you can do it, and it will sell, and people will relate to it, but it has no theoretic, theoretical, historical coherence of any kind. And um, that's why, you know, I was some horror as I reread to save everything like here. You know, I discovered that this engagement with the essayistic mode of thinking and writing occasionally took me to the sort of conservative territories where I would never step otherwise because, you know, as you th- write and think about these issues as an essayist, you tend to be very inclusive. You will take whatever materials you can take in order to make your point because you have no overarching theoretical, uh, philosophical, political project of any kind. So if you need to take Heidegger, you'll take Heidegger. If you need to take Hannah Arendt, you'll take Hannah Arendt. If you need to take Luhmann, you'll take Luhmann. You basically take whatever is available because you yourself don't represent any theoretical coherence. You're just there to score points and insert nice quotations. And uh, to some extent, you know, it became obvious to me that my own work in review essays and book reviews, but also in To Save Everything Click Here, suffered from that symptom. And that, uh, and it became obvious to me at the same time that um, what I identified as internet centrism, this idea to explain change by invoking this medium called the internet, which has certain features, and those features can be analyzed and they can be studied and they, they, they need to be kind of predict we need to predict what their effect on the future would be that the best way to deflate that way of thinking was by historicizing all of that it was by historicizing many paths that were not taken it was by showing that essentially at some point there was no internet and that uh, what we now take it to be is a result of power struggles and contingencies that have their own histories and those histories could be told and that many similar debates have happened around other media so if you look at the book for example you do have People like Elizabeth Eisenstein, for example, who've argued for a long time that uh, following kind of Marshall McLuhan and McLuhan-esque thinking that, uh, you know, the book is, is a medium with coherent set of objects, with coherent set of features. And those features, you can trace them and you can then did deduce what effect they have had on the world. And then, of course, you have people pushing against that. Historians like Adrian Jones, for example, who would say, no, 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 for many centuries, we didn't know what the book was. There was a lot of, there were a lot of debates and struggles about what that object would be. Uh, we didn't know whether it would be stable, whether it would look very different. And we need to tell the story of how the book became what it did before we can then start speculating about its effects. Which, of course, if you think about it, it's a, it's a kind of everyday debate in science studies about how objects are constituted by people working, people and networks working around them. And that's what drove me to history of science uh, as, a, as a discipline, because it became obvious to me that all these discussions about the internet, they could be broken down into smaller discussions, and those discussions do need to be historicized. So this is how I ended up in history of science. Uh, and I ended up there before... 
I had a way of thinking about the political economy of those things. Um, so, you know, if, um, if I had met my wife a couple of years earlier, I doubt I would have ever ended up in the history of science program. Uh, and this is where you also have to understand that, uh, so I'm not American, but I was living in America at the time. Uh, I moved to the U.S. in 2008, roughly. So by the time To Save Everything Click Here comes out in 2013, I'm there already four or five years. And I become kind of tied up by all these American institutions, whether they're think tanks or universities or publications. Uh, because I'm early into this field, everybody wants a piece of me somehow, you know, so people offer me things, you know, you can be a contributing editor here, you can be a fellow there, you can be, uh, you know, an honorary something there. And uh it was an easy life because you you do get some money from fellowships. You do get you know you do get hurt in many publications. I mean, it was kind of insane because as I started my first year in the dissertation program, New York Times reached out to me and said, "Ah, oh, you know, Nick, uh, Nicholas Christoph is going on a uh, holiday, so we need somebody to run a column in the New York Times every Sunday for like six weeks. Do we want to do that?" And I'm like, "Sure, why not?" I'm like 27 or something. I'm like, "Okay, I'll do that." <laughs> And then they actually asked me whether I would be interested to come in and do it every month. And, but then I would need to abandon uh, all of my other engagements with the European media. And I already had columns that were syndicated. And I thought about it. And I decided that, no, I don't want that. Because ultimately, then it seemed to me that there was something almost pathological about the debate in America. <laughs> and that there were certain issues... <laughs> That were and dimensions that were constantly avoided and crowded out. And if I were really to stay and flourish in the kind of mainstream American debate, which I probably could, uh, it would completely transform me and it would transform me as a thinker and it would transform the questions I wanted to ask and answer. So I basically said no. And uh, by the time I started spending more time in Europe, as I, you know, as we got together with Francesca, I understood that whatever pathologist I had in my thinking and in my kind of presentation had to do with me needing to fit a lot of my arguments into the mainstream American public debate. So, and as, as the moment I understood that, I like said, okay, no, I need to get out. So I got out of the U.S. and I basically stopped writing for U.S. media almost completely. Not because I, you know, they didn't want me to. I mean, they would keep reaching out. They want to review a book. They want to write. But I thought that I needed to take a break to reestablish my identity as an independent thinker who did not have to frame what I have to say into the way in which they wanted. And it was a very I think key decision for me because as I was experimenting with different, um, you know, epistemes, if you will. So I was uh, on the one hand in the history of science. So I was trying to historicize things. On the other hand, I started engaging very deeply and profoundly with leftist political economy and Marxism and autonomous Marxism and kind of the, the broader, let's say, new left review tradition. I, I, I started making sense of many debates in world system theory. I mean, there was a lot of stuff that I was going through. I understood that on the one hand, I should be publishing less because there is no point in publishing when you are thinking through things and you don't have a complete theoretical or nearly complete theoretical coherence. And uh, I should be publishing a little bit less in the U.S. because it was just so tempting. You had the tech clash 
uh, going on, you know, and me right. who was at its very beginning, mm. uh, I could have been on TV every week and I could have been publishing an op-ed in the New York Times every month. But I, I just thought it's just, what was the point, right? So I wisely decided to step back from the public spotlight and to spend more time reading, writing, expanding my horizons. I started learning foreign languages like crazy. I mean, I did speak French and German already, but they were not good. And I then expanded into Italian and Spanish and Portuguese and Mandarin. And so I spent uh, a lot of, I spent most of the last decade essentially uh, trying to um, expand my horizons as much as I could, knowing that eventually I would step back into the public spotlight, but it would be in a very different position was a very different set of ideas and was a very different set of claims and maybe was more coherence and less dependence on needing to be heard by you know the mainstream uh because you know my position would be hopefully original enough that the mainstream would have no choice but to engage uh and you know so now I, you kind of you caught me as we're doing this podcast as i'm slowly moving back into the public spotlight with my kind of count monte cristo strategy, strategy. What you outlined here, this also is like a question I've had for a long time about part of the reason why I got into writing, but then also have like my own feelings about it is like thinking and seeing like a lot of deficiencies of coverage and analysis and discussion, uh, specifically around the gig economy. I think still even when I started in what, like 2019? And, and feeling like that, as you've talked about before, there's a lack of historization. There's like still the temptation to think of everything as new. Uh, there's like a reluctance to even step outside of like narrow frameworks that are already pre-established by the PR, like, you know, business or the very specific business packages or very specific like narratives that Silicon Valley talks about and even like talks to the workers, you know, and all of this has only really developed recently, but still it feels like there are strong limitations that anyone can really have inside of U.S. media when speaking about anything, it feels like, that has any sort of technological dimension, right? Like even a lot of the coverage and discussion and discourse here is dominated by journalists, personalities, you know, who have like, who trade in like, you know, sort of access to present a sort of explanatory framework instead of, like, instead of as you were talking about this, like analytical or this attempt at analysis and, and criticism and really deep thinking. Like, do you think that is a, a limitation on the American discourse and the U.S. discourse and media discourse that can be overcome? Is that something that's just embedded? Like, is that a development that comes out of the way in which the, it, you know, the way that people talk about these things here has come? Or is that, you know, as something unique to how tech yeah. Silicon Valley, you know, are discussed and thought about yeah. here. I mean, l l let me, let me make maybe a few more disclaimers. So, I mean, I, I don't want to sound anti-American by, by any, by any means when I, when I, when I engage in this critique of the American media and the American <laughs> public sphere, but you have to understand, I understood it only as I started spending more time in Europe, following the European media a little bit more closely the American public debate on this issue sets the tone and the direction and the agenda for the European one, by and large. It might seem strange because, ha, you know, in, in uh, uh, Europe we have uh, all this uh, deeper 
deeper debates about stuff. But ultimately, the top uh, editorial and journalistic layer in newspapers in Europe, they start by looking at the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and to some extent the Financial Times. And then they understand what issues matter. And there is a whole class of journalists in places like Italy and Spain who just make a living by rewriting articles from the New York Times, uh, by translating them and adding maybe a local quote to them. Uh, so what happens in America and the way in which the debate in America is shaped around these issues matters globally. So that's why I don't want to abandon Abandon it entirely, and you know. And for me, it was not. You know, I took a temporary pause uh, to step out and uh, kind of rebuild, rebuild, let's say, my intellectual identity on terms that I wanted to uh, to feature, rather than on terms that the media and the American public uh, was was imposing on myself. Um, the way to which it can be changed, I don't know. I mean, I appreciate the efforts that you guys put into historicizing and problematizing, so to say, some of these debates. But I think ultimately, um, I, I haven't been able to solve this issue, to be honest. It's not, hmm. it's not an easy one to solve because, and it's not just on tech that the debate is so skewed, right? It's, uh, and it also has to do, I think, with political tradition in the U.S. with the bipartisan system that exists. I mean, there are many, many factors. It's very hard for kind of non-party left that is also a non-trade union left to get hurt. And it's much easier, let's say, in Italy or Germany, where you do have this uh, non, non uh, how should I say, not extra-parliamentary forces um, that are much more visible and have their own publications and have their own tradition, and uh, they're not as easy to this. You wouldn't just call them Antifa or whatever, right? I mean, they, they do have a substantial intellectual tradition. So uh, ultimately, I think it boils down to telling better stories. So I, and in the end, as it pains me to say that after, you know, a decade of spending time in the archive and uh, reading a lot of theory, I, I, I come to the conclusion that ultimately it will be not through necessarily popular media and fiction, but through much better narrated nonfiction that we would be able to capture the public. And ultimately, it will go down to better stories. But the stories, you know, they do need to have a strong analytical framework that underpins them. You can tell a gripping story about Uber drivers, but as you tell that story, you know, you can still relate it to debates about post-industrial society that emerged in the early 1970s. And it would be a very different story from just insisting on, uh, you know, Uber CEO being a bad guy. And of course, the temptation, mm -hmm. and this is where, you know, maybe I can uh, criticize both of you <laughs> to some extent. I mean, the temptation Go with uh, covering big tech is that it's just so mm -hmm. full of assholes that there is just so much mm -hmm. low-hanging fruit to attack. Yeah. And uh, you score much better publicity points by attacking the assholes than by doing the hard work of kind of showing the structural forces that have produced them. And I think if we can mm -hmm. reorient the public debate to uncovering the public forces, to uncovering the historical and political forces that produce these assholes, as opposed to piling on on them, that would change a lot. And that, you know, we will get into Web3 and the crypto debate. And I think this is also what is so bad about the opposition and the critical stance on Web3 because it's just so easy to find uh, this m kind of negative characters who have said something stupid 
and to keep attacking them, you know, and I, I've done that a lot. And, you know, and, and, and I, I just hope that that's not part of my kind of style that you guys took, took, uh, took, <laughs> uh, took as a way to continue. Because, yes, I mean, I could spend my whole life continuing to attack Jeff Jarvis. I mean, it's like it just it's it's a, it's a <laughs> gift that keeps on giving. Right. I mean, these people keep saying stupid things and they never stop. And uh, you can make a living out of it very easily. But at some point you have to stop. Right. And you have to start asking questions what is the kind of a system that produces them and uh, why does this system exist and then you just need to use jeff jarvis once as a kind of as a hook to introduce your piece and then the rest has to relate to something else and i'm afraid that for the uh, uh, and that's why you know i stopped doing this vicious book reviews uh in part because i thought they've done their purpose to some extent but also it was just no longer i mean you just understand that the, the, the incentives of writing the stupid books, they, they don't go away just because there are bad reviews. So it doesn't change right. much mm. because people don't write those books um, to advance an argument. They write those books because they need it on their CV or they need an advance or they need it as a step to their career. They're not engaging in that in the kind of true Habermasian spirit of producing the better argument, they're engaging in it because ultimately uh, they see it as a very instrumental thing that needs to be out there. So why should I be spending months engaging with this trash, even if they don't bother to engage with it? Right. So, I mean, uh, those were the kind of questions that pushed me a little bit away from uh, continuing in this vicious mode in which I operated for like two or three years. Um, and uh, then it just becomes a question of what kind of issues should be on your own intellectual agenda and uh, how do you make them visible and present in your work? And I think uh, that's why, you know, when I wrote also that very important essay, it was a very important essay for me on the limits of tech criticism, which was technically a review, I think, of Nicholas Carr's book. I mean, I was not yet operating in a full kind of political and political economic mode at the time. But even there, it became obvious to me that, um, you know, this earlier critique that I've made of this essayistic mode of thinking, um, it was very, uh, technology as a field was very conducive to it. Because ultimately, you know, it's it's a field where you can be super creative as an essayist because you have all these dichotomies on which you can build technology and humanity. You know, you start with that dichotomy and you can write an essay very easily. Uh, and that will be an essay that will look coherent and will cite all the important sources and will allow you to show off your audition and background research. But in the end, it will tell you absolutely nothing about uh, what Google or Facebook do because to understand Google and Facebook, it's not the right dichotomy to start with because they, okay, they, to some extent, they are technologists, but they are also capitalist microcosms of some kind. And to understand them, you need to understand the history of capitalism. You need to understand the effects of the financial crisis. Uh, you need to understand why so much money is pouring into uh, tech. You need to understand why SoftBank can borrow money so cheaply. I mean, you need to understand things, which this simplistic dichotomy that lends itself to assistic thinking and quoting my Martin Heidegger or Hannah Arendt or whoever, it just doesn't lend itself to. And once you understand those limitations, I mean, I mean, if you're honest intellectually, you just need to abandon and start something new and do it differently, uh, or you'll just continue doing it because there is reputation benefits or something else in it, and I never wanted them. So, you know, I basically decided not to say anything uh, 
during TechLash, it was of zero interest to me. I understood that it's the wrong scapegoat, that people attacking uh, Google and Facebook and Cambridge Analytica and whatnot. I mean, it was just such an easy thing to do and such a cheap thing to do. And ultimately, it looked clear it looked clear to me that a fight that is led by financial times could not be a fight that would be uh you know even if it would be one it would not be of much uh, use to truly progressive forces that's why i stayed away from it and i don't regret it for a second i think that it, it spared me a lot of uh, wasted hours and a lot of unnecessary media interventions yeah, I think I've talked with Jathan a bit about this, about how, like, you know, when we came together and started doing the pod, it offers a little bit more freedom that I definitely don't have in, I guess, the day-to-day writing. Not to say, like, there's they're censorious or anything, but that when you're writing these blogs, when you're writing relatively quick hits or even shorter ones, or even, like, longer-length ones, you do not have the time, space, or really, uh, I guess, the, the room, you know, to do the proper treatment. I feel like maybe, you know, like, when, like, I remember I had re- overhauled something that I'd written for my undergraduate thesis after I'd read your review of Zupoff because of the way that you broke down the specific argument of surveillance capitalism and connected it to the genealogy of her uh, of her mentors and and, and um, advisors and so and I thought that was that was like a really fascinating like unfurling of this concept that I was starting to see everywhere and I didn't understand why it was everywhere and, and, and helped understand some of the limitations of its criticism that other people probably wouldn't realize until they started to adopt it more widely um, and tried to, you know, do similar things with like how, you know, like the origins of the, the sharing economy and the gig economy work for school at least. And, and that was like my pitch to get my job never ended up getting to do it, right? never getting up to do the larger historical stuff that I had written and got me my job in the first place because the such that it is or the way that it feels like it has to be. I mean, it doesn't have to be, but the way I feel like I can't escape is a little too limiting and minimizing for, for the writing, which sucks. Yeah, but I mean, look, there is also, I mean, I'm not... Let me, let, me, let me put it that way. I'm self-reflexive enough to know that there is also a political economy behind deep thought, you know, if you want to put it that way. You know, in some sense, because of all this very fortunate coincidences and the success of my early work and the fact that, you know, people recognized me as a quote-unquote thought leader, you know, I could go and uh, give a talk and make enough money not to do anything for the rest of the months, you know, and it's not like I've, I've refused from the beginning to have a speaking agent, you know, I didn't want to be represented by anybody and I'm not still, so, you know, I never, like, I was very aware of the sort of political economy of this, but also the ethics of this. But nonetheless, it's that political economy that allowed me to do what I've done in the last five or seven years, you know, essentially for the last three years or so, I've secluded myself in a little village in Calabria and I am in command of my own schedule and I wake up and read and study languages and, you know, there is no pressure. If I want to spend nine months writing a 20,000 word piece for which I wouldn't even get paid, I would do that and I wouldn't worry about things. Uh, there are very few people who could do that in the kind of this field because people do have the pressure to produce and write and write a weekly column or a monthly column or a daily column. So I'm not pitching this as a solution for everybody. Uh, and clearly it requires a certain combination of factors and forces 
and you know, and I, I can understand that you know uh, Jason has uh, you know security as an academic, uh, but uh, the amount of like admin bullshit he has to do to carve out you know, <laughs> ten hours of research a week, a month uh, is probably immense. So I, I don't pitch uh, my lifestyle as a solution. And it's also, it's, it's a monastic lifestyle. You know, it's not fun. I'm on top of a mountain and I don't <laughs> drive. So, you know, it's by choice. So I can't escape from uh, from reading and writing. But ultimately, I think once you realize what the background processes and structures need to be to allow you to think these deep thoughts, um, then you can start working to aligning yourself with the right institutions and the right people and the right networks to enable that. I mean, my, my fear is that a lot of people don't even realize that there is this uh, kind of vast invisible curriculum that you can study in order to get a better grasp of the big tech. And I think, you know, with the with the syllabus, we did not manage because it's just 60 topics and it's really, it's not just about tech, it's about everything. We, we did not manage to mm-hmm. make that curriculum fully visible. I think that with the crypto syllabus, which has a much narrower scope and where we can actually do bibliographies, we can do extensive reading lists, we can actually point people to the fact that they are missing out on a lot of literature. They are missing out on a lot of perspectives. And essentially, every hour they, they don't spend reading uh, is an hour wasted. So, you know, to some extent, it's a way to uh, tell them that uh, whatever your priorities are right now, if they don't involve reading, they're probably wrong. Uh, right so uh and you know we do that by showing them that look you think you you've mastered your field but look at just how many things you never even knew existed uh and i think the more we can do that the better and i think uh ultimately right. that's what i hope we will be able to do with the syllabus over the next year or two it's to create more of this topical uh reading list and bibliographies to show to people that First of all, there are things and perspectives and ways to think about it uh, that they might not have recognized. And second, to, you know, make them a little bit more visible. And um, what can I say? I mean, I've decided not to be in academia, so I don't work with students. Um, So there is no kind of direct didactic contact. contact, uh, But I do hope that through my writings, through the syllabus, through another project, actually a podcasting project I've been working on for seven months now, which will appear sometime in late March, early April, uh, I will perform also some of these didactic functions. And I think, you know, they are important, uh, mm. but I don't think that the university is necessarily where the action is right now. So uh, will be in, 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 in the, you know, years to come. As, as an academic, uh, I 100% agree, <laughs> which is why I think so much of what I do uh, in terms of like, I, you know, I produce academic articles, but I also produce the kinds of academic articles that tend to be very difficult to publish um, because I'm very interested in, in doing a kind of production that does try to escape the hyper narrow, the, the kind of political economy of knowledge in the in academia, and and, and your reflections uh, and your your points directed at us are extremely well taken. I mean, obviously, Ed and I, uh, in terms of, of 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 style and sentiment, have taken things from your you know very fun and vicious reviews. But at the same time, I think you're a hundred percent correct. Where uh, for for us, you know the you know, making fun of the assholes uh, in Silicon Valley that are a dime a dozen um, is 
I think for us, it serves as a kind of sugar that helps the vegetables go down because, and it, it's not always easy, but we do always try to provide a kind of, you know, a, a coherent political project, theoretical framework, uh, you know, a, 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 a kind of normative goal, um, structural analysis around like, you know, these assholes didn't just emerge from any, from nowhere. They are in, in a lot of ways, um, as Marx would say, right, the kind of embodiments of capital. Um, and, and how are they embodying these imperatives of capital? It is always a tricky line to walk in terms of how do you use, you know, for, you know, for the podcast, you know, the, to kind of use a textual analogy, something like a lead with the, with the, this week's asshole, uh, to then Go deeper into what are what are actually broader historical, political, theoretical, structural points to be drawing out of this. Pull people in with the asshole and then leave them with a larger point. I think to that, I want to also segue because we could talk about this for forever and ever and ever, but we would be absolutely remiss to not, you know, the, you, you mentioned this as your kind of Count of Monte Cristo moment. You're coming, you're stepping back into the, into the public light with projects. You've hinted at a forthcoming, you know, podcast and all that, which, you know, I know we're all looking forward to. Um, TMK will hang up the microphones when that podcast drops. Our, our job will be done. We'll have been made obsolete. No. <laughs> Um, but what is it about this moment that is pulling you out of out of the your kind of uh, monastic lifestyle and and starting to do things like your very well received? I was very we were very excited to see your Web three essay, you know, a map in search of a territory. Um, I think we also see this with the ways you've been conducting these long form interviews for the crypto syllabus where there is a lot of you, not just in terms of like who you're talking to, but also how you're guiding that interview, the kinds of questions you're asking. It's very clear that there are things you're interested in knowing more about and getting out there into the discourse. What is it about this moment, Web3, cryptocurrency, blockchain, whatever it is that is kind of pulling you back in and saying, you know, now, now, now there is something meaty that needs to be an analyzed and for you to start digging into. Sure. Well, first of all, I mean, uh, let me put it that way. Uh, I was going to come back regardless of uh, what happened to Crypto Web 3. I mean, that, that's, it's more of a coincidence. I mean, I have been working on a book on two books, actually, for, for a very long time. One of them is, is almost ready. I keep revising it. And uh, if all goes well, it will appear next year. So uh, a lot of my kind of comeback uh, was tied to that. And I have essays that have been written that are also coming out uh, soon um, uh, that I think will um, shape the debate a little bit on, 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 on the broader issues, not necessarily on Web3 and crypto. So let me put it that way. It was always planned that I would step back into the public sphere with a kind of louder and clearer voice. And, you know, I was not 
I was not really planning to retire. I'm not that old. So it was always, <laughs> it was always in the cards. Uh, now, uh, as for the current moment, um, I think, uh, I, how should I put it? I think there is a convergence of factors, uh, which somehow made Web3 framing of things uh, almost the default lens of how to read uh, the political economy of Silicon Valley and Web2 and then how to frame solutions to them. And it's a framing that uh, I think might be accepted by many people on the left might be accepted at least by those people on the left who were convinced, let's say, by Zubov's critique of surveillance capitalism. Uh, because I ultimately think that a lot of the critiques that feed the Web3 beast, so to say, they are rooted in a shared set of assumptions that Zubov and some other people have uh, with regards to the centrality of data to the current model of accumulation and, and capitalism. And, you know, and I was one of the first people, I would say, without false modesty, to kind of bring public attention to it uh, and, you know, and insist on the fact that data is super important in the digital economy and it feeds into the uh, political economy of AI and we have to be looking at it and so forth. But I think over the years, this insistence on data it almost crowded out all the other ways in which uh, this sector of Silicon Valley, if you want to call it that, or Web 2.0, uh, uh, consolidates and builds its power. And that, you know, the reason why they're powerful partly has to do with their ability to accumulate and appropriate and centralize data, but partly has to do with a lot of other factors. It has to do with their political connections, has to do with the historical trajectory of uh, capitalism, has to do with uh, the power of the U.S. state, uh, has to do with the geopolitics of it, has to do with the competition within the U.S. and China. Uh, it's not a one-cause story. Uh, and my fear is that this uh, fetishization of data and it it's kind of centralization on the servers of these companies makes it almost um, imperative that people who seriously take that critique embrace Web3 and crypto as a possible solution. Because ultimately, if you frame everything as a problem of centralization of data, this new decentralized systems, they do offer a solution that is at least logical. But it's logical only if you start with an extremely narrow conception of what the problem is to begin with. And I understood that, you know, and I fought Zubov's argument from the very beginning. I've written that long review. I've uh, posed it publicly. I actually have another essay, which again engages with Zubov coming out very soon. Uh, and I just understood that there is something about Web3 and crypto that will end up completely twisting our account of the political economy of digital capitalism, which would completely remove all this more critical, historical, geopolitical dimensions from the debate, leaving us with some kind of almost solutionist ethic and solutionist outlook of, hey, we can just design these technical systems differently and we can uh, make sure that they uh, look differently, that they have a different... Uh, kind of governance model baked into them and that would somehow take us away from that model and they just think it's wrong it's like analytically wrong it's intellectually wrong it's historically wrong and uh, there is no reason for us not to point that out that said my how should i put it in my in my in, in the book that i'm finishing now 
there is a certain critique also of how we think about socialism and how we think about alternatives to this capitalist system and what digital socialism is and, and, and what it should be. And I am very open to experiments with alternative ways of coordinating action among individuals, among groups, among collectives. I do think that th there are certain... Uh, there is a certain problematic, if you want to use this fancy French word, uh, in the Web3 crypto space, particularly as it pertains to issues like mechanism design and social coordination, that should be of interest to people who think about alternatives to capitalism. Uh, my fear is that the inability of this uh, um, community and you know there are many but let's call them a community for the for the simplicity's sake their inability to link these questions and to situate them properly in the right geopolitical and political economic context ends up with them uh asking the right questions well, not asking the right questions but at least mining the right conceptual territory if you can put it that way yes it's important for us to understand how people can engage in social action how that action can be mediated how it can be coordinated how new types of knowledges can emerge from it how we can crystallize it and share it with the rest of them all of these are important questions no doubt the way in which they ask them uh by starting very often with how do we design a community, how do we issue tokens, how do we run a treasury collectively, how decisions are taken inside the community. To me, it seems that they're asking them from the wrong end, uh, that they have to be asking them from the end of, okay, this is what capitalism today looks like. Uh, these are the powerful forces. We have BlackRock, Blackstone, we have SoftBank, we have all these other powerful actors. Uh, what kind of changes do we need to make in terms of how we are designing these new institutions for these institutions to offer a powerful counterpoint to the Black Rocks and Blackstones and SoftBanks of the world? And I'm afraid that because of the incentives inside these communities are so uh, strange and often have to do with the community needing to like leverage the tokens that they issued, needing to do token swaps, needing to somehow, you know, it's not, I don't feel that it's necessarily driven by a coherent geopolitical macro level understanding of what today's capitalism is. If it were driven by that understanding, I think that a lot of the experiments and questions that they're asking would be completely valid. And, you know, and that's why when I listened to one of your earlier shows uh, about Web3, uh, I was a little bit disturbed because for uh, you, it seemed that these experiments with new forms of social organization smacked off technocracy. Uh, and I think you even used that term. And for me, it's not, because ultimately, if you want to build a new socialist system, it would need to have some kind of new feedback mechanisms. I call them feedback infrastructures in, my, in one of my essays. You do need to engage with this legacy of cybernetics, black boxes, even mechanism design. You need to connect all of that to socialist calculation debate. You need to understand what went wrong in the socialist calculation debate. You need to understand why socialists could never move from insisting that all they need is a system for allocating goods. I mean, socialists still believe that the alternative that they need to offer to the market is a more efficient system for allocating goods. 
This is not what neoliberals believe. For neoliberals, the market is not just a system for allocating goods. It's a system for problem solving. It's a system for discovery. It's a system for organizing knowledge. And the socialists for a century are stuck in the same conceptual uh, model that they had in the early 1920s. No, we just need to build a system for allocating goods and building production. Maybe we'll do it democratically. Maybe we'll involve everybody in decision-making. But they're still stuck, and we need to get them out of it. And to get them out of it, you do need to engage with everything that the neoliberals have been doing around the market. You know, thinking about it as an information processing machine, thinking about it as a problem-solving machine, thinking about it as a way of discovery and becoming. Neoliberals have done all of that. Somebody has to engage with it. Uh, I don't see Web3 crypto people necessarily engaging with it, but the fact that they are mining some of that literature, including literature related to mechanism design, for me, it's a good thing. It basically tells us that those of us who maybe have engaged with the history of capitalism and its political economy a bit more have to be engaging with that literature too and have to be articulating specific positions and specific critiques of it, which is not at all happening. So let me put it that way. I have a sympathetic, almost imminent critique of what some of these groups do. And I, might, I must tell you that some of these groups are relatively minor. They are not the kind of groups conquering El Salvador or Puerto Rico or, you know, it's kind of people who would even self-identify as progressive and leftists experimenting with DAOs and doing interesting, they think that they're doing interesting things and some of them are interesting. They're just not as politically relevant as they think. So with that specific corner or Web3 crypto community, I think there is a way to engage and criticize them. And I've done some of that, but we should do that without dismissing the problematic with which they're engaging. And that, 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 I guess, is the message. That essay that you were talking about, the On Digital Socialism essay, I was revisiting it after your Web3 essay and thinking about how, so, like, the move that you make in the beginning of 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 going through this guy's essay um, where he talks about um, digital capitalism and and how much information can be conveyed or will be conveyed in this new form of capitalism and we can collapse prices or we can collapse all the preferences into something that's easily identifiable for people and then reintroducing everyone or reorienting people to Hayek and what Hayek is actually arguing and what the implications of his thought are. Similarly, I think, you know, when I'm reflecting on or thinking about with with some of the elements of the crypto discussion, right? Like you say, like they're mining some of this territory. And we've talked a bit about, you know, some of the more immediate uh, features like smart contracts that are ubiquitous and integral, but aren't deeply thought through on the, um, in some of these crypto uh, spaces, like in, in maybe in the implications of like what it means for Ethereum, but on some level they are mined through by these people where they understand that they want to introduce transactions or they want to re they want to you know reformulate how social relations happen between people in one way or another and and that elicits i think sufficient horror from us where we'll react to that instantly but i am curious if you think that you know with some of these with some of these moves that they made some of these developments that they've made with half understandings or maybe with some familiarity with the undermining with the with the underlying literature that there is something there or or it's that there needs to be a better understanding of what they have created what is there to respond to it to combat it to con- or to provide an alternative that is beyond just you know what the socialists have adhered to for the past century 
I mean, ultimately, I think to answer this question uh, fully, I would need to give you how I think about socialism. And, you know, so there is a very, and, and I will have to tell you how we have thought about wrongly in the past, which will take us, you know, another five hours. So let me <laughs> sidestep that for a second and try to say that however you define and I define socialism, I think that making society more plastic, as like the Brazilian philosopher Roberto Unger would say. So ensuring that there is more plasticity in the social world, mm-hmm. it's a good thing. Mm-hmm. And making sure that there is more revisability in the social world is a good thing. Making sure that there is a way to look at institutions, processes, and layers that we have previously assumed to be natural and understand that they are historical, revisable, and changeable is a good thing. Um, Law, uh, at least in the thought of somebody like Unger, plays a huge role in making society both revisable and plastic. It's not done only through contract law, and contract law, to some extent, can crowd out a lot of plasticity of the social world. So um, clearly, there is something um, to be said about the narrowness of vision that puts so much importance to smart contracts as opposed to all sorts of other ways in which the state, uh, as a vehicle for setting the law, uh, could also be a vehicle for increasing plasticity of social relations and social interactions, which is the community that obsesses about smart contracts doesn't want to recognize and work about. Now, uh, what the work and thought of somebody like Unger misses is any reflection upon technology and technological infrastructures as the sources of the same plasticity and revisability. So clearly, we want to build uh, societies where we have ways of observing how our existing institutions operate uh, trying to understand and draw a causal account why they're not delivering on the promises that they are de- supposed to be delivering on, or trying to understand how, while operating in the name of objectivity and efficiency, they're actually hurting some groups uh, without us realizing that. All of that requires a certain degree of um, transparency and uh, storability, verifiability. I mean, you do need to be able to understand how those institutions work and relate them to all the other institutions. So you do require to observe them, store data, analyze it, process it, but you also need to make it easier for ordinary citizens, uh, groups, citizen associations, collectives to engage in action together, to find each other, to understand that my needs are the same as your needs and they're the same as the needs of your neighbor so that instead of using an individual app to solve these problems privately, we need to aim for a collective solution that will solve the problem for three of us. And while we build that collective solution, we understand that while solving that problem, we're actually making the life worse for our fourth neighbor and our fifth neighbor and our sixth neighbor. So maybe this collective solution is not actually the solution the society as a whole should take. All of that requires a certain degree of technological and digital infrastructures, not just for planning and finding each other, but also for experimenting and running simulations to understand what are the likely consequences of one solution over another solution. So, you know, the kind of uh, alternative to capitalism that I want would be heavily technological and would allow all sorts of um, 
groups to come together, form collectives, understand what their shared goals are, experiment and simulate uh, the likely outcomes of uh, those collective actions and so forth. Now, do you need the blockchain to do all of that? No. Um, you can do that. Like There is nothing in this technology that requires the blockchain. There is nothing in this uh, technology that says we want to build a system that uh, would kind of uh, get rid of trust and would replace trust with cryptographic problems that need to be solved by, uh, you know, consuming a lot of energy. Uh, or instead, we would, you know, rely on some kind of proof of stake mechanism, which would set in place some of these oligarchic tendencies that we might see if Ethereum switches to a proof of, um, a proof of stake. Uh, but uh, we... I mean, I do have to grant the Web3 crypto community a certain uh, degree of coherence and elegance. I mean, yes, we don't need the blockchain, but many of these things that I have just outlined, they could be realized maybe in a very limited and narrow manner with smart contracts, DAOs, and everything else. Um, I mean, and, and, and that's why I think this space is worth watching because ultimately it's also plausible that because of the inherent limitations that are built into smart contracts, for example, we are going to end up with an inferior version of what I have been advocating. And that inferior version, because of the ideological and technological limitations built into the systems, would make us think that this is everything that's possible uh, as an alternative to digital capitalism. And that's not at all would be the case. That would be, again, the consequence of structural and historical factors of certain venture capitalists making certain funds available for certain types of projects, which, of course, if you want to narrate this, we might narrate as just a natural reflection of the limits of uh, anti-systemic alternatives to the capitalist system. Uh, right? And this is where mm, I do think it's, it's completely fair to be going after Web3 and crypto communities for not having a more holistic macro-historical vision and for not uh, providing arguments why it is that they would like to dismiss all the other efforts and all the histories and all the ways of conceptualizing art, how to pay artists, you know, how to compensate them, how to struggle, how to engage in rent strikes, how to engage in art strikes. I mean, why do we have to assume that NFTs is the answer to the problem of funding art when we do have a century of experiments with funding arts and culture, which were much more radical, which involved artists mobilizing, which involved artists going on strikes, which involved all sorts of radical actions, which have actually worked in the past, right? So if they do want to present NFTs as the answer, I think that the burden should be on them to show that once you bring it to the level of collective solution, that that's actually a solution we should embrace. You know, as, a, as an individual thing, you know, fine, you can do that. And, you know, some people speculate, some people buy derivatives, some people speculate on oil, some people invest in houses. I mean, yes, artists are also allowed to be like speculators. It's a capitalist system. It's a capitalist world we live in, and all of that is fine. But uh, just as we should go after, uh, you know, new labor politicians or Tony Blair 
saying in the 90s and early 2000s that your house can be your ATM and we can uh, mm. scrap the welfare state and you can just live off the housing bubble forever and it can be an asset class that will provide for you in your old age. Who should be going after artists who are telling you that your art can now be an ATM and it will provide you an old age and that should be a solution that will work for everybody. I think it's completely fair and there is nothing absolutely uh, hypocritical about that and we should be subjecting these claims once they're universalized to the level of logic of how society should operate to critical scrutiny. Yeah, 100% agree. And, and I, I love everything you've just said as well around, you know, building on Unger and building beyond Unger, you know, around the need for this kind of flexibility, malleability, plasticity built into these things. I will just say, you've beautifully preempted a, 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 our latest Patreon episode with um, Nick Chavez, who's a, a mechanical engineer and a Marxist. And, th- and this is something we talk a lot about around redesigning, re-engineering, redeploying technologies that already exist in ways that have that kind of plasticity and flexibility built into them rather than, you know, the, the kind of imperatives that currently exist around, you know, one use technologies or, or the kind of rationalization of how these technologies are organized and organizing labor and so on. You know, say so it's currently behind the Patreon, um, but will soon be unlocked for, for public consumption. I, I also enjoy the way that you approach the Web3 technologies as well. I think it does marry quite well with ultimately, you know, our, our, our kind of normative technopolitical stance around Luddism, which is not the kind of vulgar Luddism of, you know, the Unabomber primitivism of just burn it all down, but is ultimately in a sense of saying, you know, we should have higher expectations of these technologies and we should also hold the feet to the, uh, hold people's feet to the fire when they do claim that this is decentralization or this is democratization. But then you look at how it actually works and, oh, lo and behold, it's actually, uh, just stealth centralization, um, or it's stealth oligarchic, uh, organization or, you know, it's a lot of bullshit artists and useful idiots and optimistic, optimistic gamblers that are kind of directing this. But I think you're exactly right in terms of having that critique, having that, that broader structural, historical, material critique, and also at the same time saying, you know, what, what can be salvaged here? What is worthwhile? There is one last thing I wanted to to kind of throw in your court before we end the episode, uh, and and that is something that I think actually does go you know, follow on from this conversation, and it's something that is growing a lot more in terms of the discord, the critical analyses and political economies of technology. And so many well-known and well-qualified intellectuals, people like Giannis Varoufakis, people like Jody, uh, Jody Dean, have been arguing that the, the kind of regressive transition to techno-feudalism is already well underway. Or, or, and then you've also got others like McKinsey Work arguing that capitalism is dead and some other unique no, uh, uniquely new mode of production is replacing it. I'm, I'm curious what you think about that in terms of, you know, his, 
periodizing, historicizing, you know, or, you know, is this still just very much capitalism, right? Perhaps even capitalism doubling down. Uh, I know this is something you've been giving some thought to. I've been seeing it in some of the interviews, some of your tweets and, and so on. So I would love to, to know what you think about these arguments that we are heading towards some kind of new feudalism or capitalism is dead and we're moving to some other unknown, uh, unforeseen phase or, or, you know, all, what is it about these, the, the, the kind of style and substance of this mode of analysis that you think, uh, is, is right or wrong and, and why it's kind of taking off right now? Yes. So I'll, I'll answer that. Let me just, to, to come back to the previous discussion, I just want to say one thing because I think it's fundamental. If you look at the history of the left and of the leftist thought, you see that every now and then there are questions related to organization and institutions that pop up somewhere on the left. And these are questions that really have to do with questions of how should, what should the right institutional organizational form for leftist struggles be. And you know, if you look at them long enough, you will see, for example, somebody like Alexander Bogdanov, who now is read for all sorts of other reasons because you know he's a science fiction writer also, and you know, people think that he's a precursor to cybernetics and whatnot. If you look at some of his writings that have not even been published in English yet, you will see that he's deeply concerned with questions of organization. So the, the questions of what form and what institutional form should the leftist uh, campaigns take? Uh, how do you connect uh, the party to the rest of the bureaucracy? How do you relate the workers' movement to bureaucratic institutions? How do you relate them to the state? All of these questions, uh, and how do you relate them to social complexity at large? You know, he was deeply engaged with somebody like Herbert Spencer, who, of course, we know as you know the the, the Darwin's bulldog, but he did have he was, in fact, a sociologist. So disengagement was questions of complexity, how to deal with complexity, how to reduce complexity, how to rely on technology or organizational engineering of some kind to tame complexity. They are present on the left, but are suppressed somehow. You see them resurfacing a little bit around disengagement with cybernetics. So somebody like Stafford Beer could be seen as a following in the tradition of Bogdanov. And again, there the question is, how do we retain complexity in the system? And how do we make sure that we don't kill creativity and we don't kill originality by efforts to make everything rational and simple? Because there is this inherent built-in tendency in Marxism. It's not even leftism, it's Marxism that really insists on making things simple and rational. Because ultimately, making things simple and rational is a prerequisite in Marxist thought to giving you the time to be creative. And, you know, this is sort of, I'm giving you a preview of my own argument in my book. I think that this is wrong, that you cannot basically separate life into the realm of necessity where everything will be planned and distributed rationally and in the most simplified manner possible. And then the realm of freedom where you'll just be left to your own devices to be as creative as you want, to do whatever it is that you want. And we would not even interfere into that realm. I just think it's the wrong way to think about stuff and that the way out is not to eliminate complexity by simplifying things through planning and through rationalizing things, but to make sure that the negative effects of this complexity don't spill over into society and don't impose constraints on you. And this is where technology, cybernetics, information systems, feedback loops, however men's help 
They allow you to preserve complexity, kill it, deal with it, and survive and flourish without having to rationalize things too much. And I think some people on the left throughout the last century or so have understood it. Not everybody have. And I think to some extent, the debate about DAOs, the debate about all these fancy new technologies, you know, if you frame it correctly, historically and politically, there is something to it. So I think I agree with what you've said about this being a field with a lot of con artists and bullshit artists and whatnot. But I do think we have to acknowledge that some of the people acting in the space work with genuine belief that what they're doing is going to help progressive leftist projects. I think we have to assume that they're acting in good faith. And it's only by assuming that they're acting in good faith that we would be able to show that there are certain assumptions that they have made that are not justified. You know, And whenever I overreact uh, on Twitter mostly in, in, in interacting with them, you know, I, I, I don't feel great about it because I do think we have to grant them the benefit of the doubt. But the way in which you show that there is something missing in that analysis is by developing a kind of an outside perspective on these things. And you can only develop it through historical and critical engagement with issues of organization that precede, you know, DAOs. <laughs> if, you, if you want to look at DAOs as a, as a kind of, as, a, as, a, as, a, as an example. To the question of uh, whether we are entering uh, or returning to feudalism, I mean, I have spent a lot of time on this question. I must take also some uh, blame for this framing because around 2015-16, I was one of the people to actually start actively promoting it. So there are a couple of talks and articles I've written with uh, digital feudalism and techno-feudalism in them. And as you mm-hmm. might have noticed, I have no problem renouncing my own positions uh, and saying they were stupid uh, <laughs> in retrospect, and I've done that many times, and I'm happy to do that again. Uh, so in my case, um, you know, it seemed like a sexy framing at the time, and it, it, mm-hmm. it's definitely very sexy. It attracts a lot of attention because it gives you this mm. narration that complicates the idea of progress uh, that we all associate with digitization. Um, having started a little bit... Uh, history of capitalism, having engaged a little bit with debates in the Marxist tradition, having engaged with the Brenner debate in the 1970s, having, you know, studied uh, what historical feudalism actually was, um, I became convinced that um, it's just not the right way uh, to frame things because it just basically doesn't correspond. So the features of feudalism that we identify in today's system, they were not the key features of feudalism as we think about historical feudalism, let's put it that way. And that the reason why something like techno-feudalism appears to make sense analytically is because we confuse two registers. We confuse the legal and political register with the economic one. So for the Marxist tradition, what really matters about feudalism is, of course, the economic register. It's feudalism as a mode of production where there were certain relations between different social groups and that there were different mechanisms of control and there were different distribution of who owned worked, who, who owned what, who owned what means of subsistence and means of production. And the... Uh, uh, overall analytical question that Marxists ask of feudalism is why on earth was it so unproductive? 
right? And why could we not get the types of efficiencies that we get under capitalism? Because Marxists, of course, look at feudalism uh, the way they look at capitalism, which is uh, it's just a precursor to socialism where things will be hyper-efficient. Uh, <laughs> and then, you know, as things become hyper-efficient and we will avoid all these bottlenecks that have plagued uh, the previous systems before, we would have time for creativity and all these things that I've been mentioning in the past, right? So uh, socialists, of course, are very biased when they look at uh, earlier social formations. Uh, uh, well, Marxist socialists are. Right? Because ultimately, it's all about asking what was it about the systems, what was it about the social relations of production uh, in those systems that stood in the way of maximizing the forces of production. Right? That's a basic Marxist socialist question that you would ask of any social system. And when they look at socialism, at feudalism, that's the question that they ask. Now, uh, and they answer some questions. And then there is, of course, this debate, how did feudalism give rise to capitalism, which, of course, then makes Marxists reflect upon what is it about capitalism that makes it so efficient, right? So basically, even capitalism for Marxists is intelligible only through the lens of feudalism. So it's a kind of, it's a, this very bizarre uh, epistemology where Capitalism for Marxists is intelligible only through its past and its hypothetical future. So you can only understand capitalism by situating it as a kind of transient state between social, between feudalism on the one hand and uh, socialism on the other. But most of the debates right now about feudalism, they don't really pay much attention to this economic register. And they focus almost entirely on the political and legal register, which is all about power, mm -hmm. who held power, how that power was exercised, whether uh, people exercising that power, institutions exercising that power were democratically accountable, whether they could do whatever they want. So you end up, um, uh, it, it's almost basically a fancy way of saying, uh, not maybe not a fancy way of saying, but uh, kind of analytically uh, precise way of describing what uh, Hobbes would describe as a kind of life that was nasty, brutish, and short, right? That you're basically left to this uh, precarious conditions where you do not know what's going to happen to your data, you do not know what's going to happen to your tweet because somebody, this private power that is Facebook or Twitter is going to come and censor you. Um, okay, uh, does it justify people who identify as leftists? And, you know, let me, let me put it that way. There are certain analytical insights that are valid when you apply uh, the lens of pre-centralized state feudalism, right, to understanding platforms. I mean, it basically shows you that uh, what is currently being sold to us is, a, is the reputation economy where everybody has a reputation and it has some kind of a standing within a community, it then determines what services, uh, what uh, kind of interactions they can have with the rest of the community. And all of that is determined by the community itself and by the rules of the community and has nothing to do with the rules imposed by the state, mm -hmm. right? which is basically how online communities operate. There are feudal dynamics there. If we, again, define feudalism purely as a kind of political legal system and not an economic one. And there are people who have done amazing work on that. Uh, they've done it for 15, 20 years. I mean, I have a long essay coming out on this, and I cite all of them there. They will be well known. Um, now, there is clearly some damage in people who identify as Marxists and leftists who I expected to work with the economic register rather than with the just political and the legal one coming out and saying, oh, capitalism is feudalism now. 
because mm-hmm. they don't really engage with the traditional Marxist debate on transition from feudalism to capitalism. The understanding of uh, feudalism is very uh, naive. The understanding of capitalism mm-hmm. is also not very rich. So you end up with them claiming to be operating in the economic register, but they don't actually operate there, right? And uh, mm-hmm. so this would be a very short it's not really a short way to answer your question. There are, of course, border cases. Uh, there is a book published in France on techno-feudalism by a guy called Cédric Durand, who's a pretty prominent Marxist uh, economist. That book, I think, uh, does try to engage with it as an economic system. Uh, and um, But I think it falls short. It falls short, again, because even within the Marxist tradition, um, there are certain unresolved tensions with regards to what made capitalism. And these tensions are unresolved. You know, we don't know whether how to account for things like primitive accumulation. We just don't know whether it's an ongoing thing, mm-hmm. whether there is always pillage, destruction, non-market ways of exercising power of capitalists to extract value or to make women work in the family or to pillage colonial lands, whether this is something that is limited just to the early stage of capitalism, and then capitalism just acquires this market dynamic and everything is done through the market and uh, there is no need to account for all that stuff as an ongoing process, or whether all this pillaging and all that exercise of power is an ongoing thing in capitalism. It's an unresolved debate. And you will have people like Robert Brenner telling you that, no, 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 that was just the early stage. Uh, But then if you read Mm -hmm. Marx, if you read Capital, if you read everything, it all happens through the market. It all happens through the market. And there is no way to think about capitalism by delinking it from market as a way of extracting value. And then you have many more people pushing back against it. People in historical capitalism tradition, Wallerstein, you know, you have Arigi, you have plenty of people who will tell you, no, 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 this is an ongoing thing. You have feminists saying this is an ongoing thing. You'll have a lot of, and that's a debate that's unresolved. But if you look at it, and if you look at the dynamics of the current system, and you understand that, hey, uh, there are non-market mechanisms about how bailout funds are distributed, for example, after uh, you know COVID. If you look at favors granted to Palantir, if you look at this revolving door, if you look at what some people describe as political capitalism, and if you look at the way it operates, if your initial assumption is that capitalism only operates through the market, and that's through the mm-hmm. commodification and proletarization through the market that value is extracted, then, of course, what choice do you have? You can either deny reality and you can say that, no, there are no political connections that result in Palantir grabbing all these Pentagon contracts. Or you can say, well, that's a sign of feudalism because your conception of capitalism to begin with is so pure that anything that deviates from market-based ex- extraction is considered a deviation. And I just don't think mm-hmm. it's a deviation. And uh, it's just a problem with Marxist theory that it never resolved that debate. And a lot of people on the left cling to this extremely purist system. But I must also say that people like Nancy Fraser, for example, who have tried to bridge the two by introducing all sorts of intermediary concepts to account for appropriation as an ongoing mechanism. So it's not just about exploitation, for example, of of labor, but there is also an ongoing appropriation. They have not yet delivered the degree of analytical coherence that you can just take and make usable. So just to conclude, 
I would say that the bulk of descriptions of the current system as techno-feudalist from the left don't actually engage with this literature and these debates as deeply as they should. Those that engage with them uh, somehow seem to ignore the fact that many of these issues within Marxism are just unresolved. And since they're unresolved within Marxism, um, to insist on this purity of the capitalist system and to say that any deviation from it is now techno-feudal is basically to give capitalism too good of a name. Mm-hmm. Because you know, then you'll have to justify all the other dynamics uh, related to colonialism, imperialism, uh, you know, subjugation of women, subjugation of different races. You'll have to present all of that as non-capitalist dynamics that are alien to the system. And whatever yeah. the tech firms and others doing now would also look alien. I mean, is it alien or is it just that our concept of capitalism, this pure image of everything happening through the market is just historically incorrect, even though analytically it seems it seemed coherent. And also has a moral tenor to it. I think that's also part of the appeal there, right? There is like a more like the, it's a sexy argument, has some valence morally to just kind of condemn it as uh, as a feudal arrangement that we all understand is is goes against our values and ethics on a on, on another level beyond that of what we oppose with capitalism. Sure, sure, sure. I mean, yeah, I, I couldn't have said it better. I mean, I, I that is essentially my my view and argument as well, um, Evgeny, and and also what you said. I I think that. Too often the comparison to feudalism is, as you said, it's sexy, right? It's more stylistic than substantial. It's aesthetically very powerful. It's morally very powerful. Uh, but I don't think it, I, it, its analytical power is is lacking, I, I, I think, as well. So, I mean, we could go on forever and ever, uh, and I know we would love to, but just to be kind to you and to our listeners, we've already gone very long. Um, and, and I will wrap it up there. I think that is a really beautiful point to wrap it up on. Um, is, you know, ultimately at the end of the day, uh, you know, it's wh- whether it's, you know, calling it feudalism, whether it's looking at, uh, surveillance as the problem, uh, or data as the problem, right? At the end of the day, uh, you know, a lot of this seems to be grounded in some kind of, uh, if not apologia for capitalism, then a willingness to, uh, not engage in anti-capitalist, uh, analysis and critique. Instead, you have to call it something else. So you have to say the problem is an aberration of capitalism or something that is outside of capitalism rather than understanding uh, capitalism as, a, an, ex- uh, existing and ongoing development. Um, so, I mean, with that, with that point said, uh, everything that you've said, uh, thank you so much, Evgeny, for, for coming on TMK. This has just been yeah, thank you. a wonderful and very insightful discussion. Sure. Always happy to be back if you need me. <laughs> oh, well, now you've opened the door. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Would you be able to tell us some things that you are working on? I know you have mm. Freedom as a Service. You have the NLR essay. You also had the FAS essay that came out recently about German position with uh, crypto. Yeah. What would you like to plug? Um, yeah. So, no, no. I've, so, I have, well, the book will take a while to come out. There is a new left review essay that should be out at the end of February that del- delves with some of the issues that we've been discussing. Um, there is a I mean, I'll be doing a lot of narrative podcasts, let's put it that way. So uh, there is a big first one that will launch 
hopefully at the end of March, uh, early April, we'll do roughly 10 episodes, uh, very tightly, nicely edited, uh, looking at some of this issues at the intersection of uh, history of technology, history of capitalism. Uh, but I've just decided that as much as I like uh, doing interviews like this one, uh, I mean, there is also value in narrating things and there is also a value in bringing out this different side of podcasting, uh, which um, we've done a lot of archival. So I've worked with a team of uh, different people have helped me with this uh, podcast, but we've gone to the archives, you know, we've interviewed a lot of people, we've, uh, we've done a lot of digging. Uh, so for me, it's also a way to see whether something like podcasting can be a form of public scholarship of some kind, but at the same time, whether you would be able to tell a story that will be, you know, a, a, a kind of a novel-like story almost. Uh, so with uh, takes and turns uh, instead of just uh, this long-winded analytical discussions like the one of uh, sermons almost like the one I've delivered today. <laughs> so we'll see how that flies. I mean, the, the, the hope is to do two or three of this uh, series let's put it that way a year so i have one at the end of march and we'll probably do another one or two by the end of 2022 and then we'll see what the future brings with 2023 so that's the that's probably the most exciting project which also takes you know it's uh for me it's also a way of thinking how to structure the research process how do you structure the questions how do you then release this knowledge into the world how do you link it to bibliographies how do you use it as a didactic opportunity it's a kind of it's, it was a nice way to push me to think about what kind of knowledge do i want to share with the world at large so we'll see yeah share with us your tips um, yeah maybe off there <laughs> about uh, research you don't have to share your ip uh, but <laughs> <laughs> uh, lots of lots of exciting things to come. Uh, we're all looking forward to that. I know our listeners are as well, and I do want to as well thank our listeners for 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 uh, for, for subscribing, for listening. Um, you can also find us at Patreon.com/slash This Machine Kills for uh, additional episodes every single week. Uh, your support there helps uh, TMK keep going, um, and it does provide a lot of necessary support for the kind of work that we're trying to do here as well so find us there um again thank you very much evgeny thank you to the listeners um and until next time later, later. Adios. Adios.